0: Levin Pascal, welcome to the metagame. Hi, Daniel. Nice to be here. I'm very excited for this conversation because encountering your work was kind of like, like discovering treasure. You seem like a very uh, eclectic, deep, but understated thinker. And I thought by way of introducing you, I'd tell you what my encounter was with, with your work, and then you can add to it or edit it and see if I even got a sense of what you're trying to do. That sounds perfect. I'd like to see whether or not I'm the person you encountered. Yes. <laughs> so um, to me, it seems like the through line with everything you've, you've written that I've read is that you're, you're trying to re-enchant the modern world and you're doing so without any metaphysical commitments necessary for modern people. Is that accurate? I don't have a problem with it. I
1: think there's, uh, I would break it down in a number of different directions. I think I'm doing something like post-metaphysical spiritual philosophy, but the orientation of all that um, has to lean into salience of experience. It has to lean into the harnessing of distributed and subconscious intelligence. It has to lean into uh, generative spirituality, and, and by generative, I mean something like shamanism has to tap really deep, archaic and embodied sensory motor, cellular, behavioral places. And I think we're all standing in front of um, existential risk, collective problems at a scale and tempo we really don't know how to solve. And if the things that made sense to us were going to solve these problems, they'd be solved already. So we have to take the risk of feeling into territories that might not initially make sense to us. And that a lot of that means um, encountering the world in a, in a more magical way that is not a pre-rational
0: regression. So yeah, I'm
1: behind all that stuff.
0: Yeah, so um, you just put a bunch of things on the table that I, I'd like to to talk about individually. But first, how does somebody, come to do this kind of thing, like what exactly is your origin story? I know on your website, you said you used to teach yoga and meditation, but now you're feeling better. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean by that? Um, I mean, partly it's just
1: a joke, but partly there's a certain seriousness to those activities. Mm. Uh, and, And rightly so, they represent some of the greatest achievements of human civilization. But very often we're motivated by a sense of uh, existential unease, right? That we don't know ourselves. We're not showing up in relationship properly. We're not, uh, we don't feel enough coherence of our beingness to be satisfied with what we're working on in life. And as a result, we're looking <laughs> for remedies of various kinds. They're very low level remedies, you know, you're, addictions, your bad habits, all that kind of stuff. But there's also very high level remedies, philosophy, yoga, meditation, and the degree to which we approach that stuff as either customers or as people trying to solve something about ourselves. We very often get into a kind of double bind where the, the the very motive that's leading us to these exalted practices keeps us from um, reaching the thing we want to reach through those practices. So it's good to have a, um, like a metacontextual good humor about all of that and to um, not hold those things out to you as the magical cure to uh, an invisible disease that you might be suffering. So how did you, how did you get here? Right. The origin story. I was, I was born on the site of three failed utopias. I like to say sometimes so a little Island in the Pacific Northwest where several waves of, uh, make civilization better, people had gone. Mm. I grew up in a really um, intelligent, uh, richness-oriented, open-minded household where nothing was off the table. I got to explore what I was interested in. Uh, And pretty quickly, that became anomalous phenomenon, Mm. spirituality, cosmology, uh, depth psychology, things like that. And then it turns out when you're trying to figure out what you want to do with your time, there are other people who also have had the same cluster of obsessions that you have. So you start to pay more attention to them and try to seek some of them out for guidance. And sometimes that goes really well and sometimes it doesn't, but you learn from all of it. And maybe you end up um, kind of teaching or representing some little aspect of the wisdom tradition to people but then you run into two problems. And by you, I mean me, uh, the first problem is there's a possibility that you're limiting yourself and maybe even getting bored with that procedure and that you want to very much continue to grow and surprise yourself by working on things that you aren't necessarily good at. And maybe you want to put yourself in strange situations that require more complex adaptation and maybe the role of, uh, teacher at the front of a class is not a situation where you're going to get as much personal growth and depth and adaptation and freshness as you need. So you start to branch out into uh, experimental areas. And at the same time, you find you have a need for community. And for me, um, I've told this story a lot, but I, um, I'd had a sustained uh, peak experience lasted about a month. And during that time, it felt like there was a lot of extra room. Sometimes I say like an extra floor in the house and it demanded a certain kind of furniture, the only furniture that could go into this new part of the house was post postmodernism And mm. there weren't many people who could sell me this furniture. So I was in Nietzsche, I was in Heidegger, I was in Ken Wilber. And I thought, oh, this dude has a language for this. I better at least learn this language. How do I know if I have it? So I joined an online community to see if I could pass as one of them. I did. Great. I left. Now, about six months after that, I wake up one morning with this real fire in myself for community. I'm like, I just need to talk to people about this stuff all the time. As much as as much as it's working for me personally, there's a communal dimension that needs to be equally nourished. And since I knew there was this community, I went back to it, different name, a different kind of thing. And I just started to feel like some percentage of these people are the right people. They represent a community that I'm actually looking for. And And was this the integral community? Absolutely. Yeah. And they, some of them wanted to suggest things to me. So I made a, like a social commitment to just say yes to that stuff. And if it was, hey, join this discussion, or do you want to be a moderator in the community, or, hey, write a paper for this, or come to the conference, I just started to take up those challenges and got maybe carried along. and a lot of that involves trying to deeply assimilate and regenerate for yourself in your own terms, what the structures of this integrative or now we might say metamodern philosophical context is. So I was doing a lot of really deep philosophical work, unpacking the concepts, remaking them, trying to solve my own problems in a diagrammatic philosophical sense. Uh, spent a lot of time working with Bruce Alderman at the Foundation for Integral Religion and Spirituality, and Bruce wanted to do a video series where people would share their wisdom and it quickly became a podcast. I ended up being the host. We realized that we did not want to be just featuring a handful of well-known prominent author lecturers. We wanted to map the whole terrain of whatever this cultural field was. Mm-hmm. so we started to go further afield. What does integral Satanism look like? That was one of our first videos, right? Let's talk to just anybody. You don't have to have a book. You don't have to have a teaching. If you're interested, then you're already one of the people who's co-generating this. Mm. Uh, we started these sub-series: one on sex, one on psychology, one on people who host podcasts. So maybe you'll end up on that one. And so I've been doing a lot of that with my free time for the last couple of years, as well as probably more online teaching, um, retreats and gatherings and that kind of stuff. And it all seems to me very straightforward how I ended up here. I don't know if that comes across in the story, but to me, it's it's just an obvious set of
0: steps. Yeah, it does seem quite straightforward. The part that was the most interesting that I, I really wanna explore is what was this peak experience? Mm. What prompted it? And other than that analogy of a new floor in the house, how would you describe it? Yeah.
1: I'm always, I'm always cautious when thinking about what triggers these experiences. Um, did a recording with Rick Repetti on the philosophy of meditation recently. And we had a lot of discussion about personal experiences and what I call the millionth customer fallacy, or you mm. can go into the store, you're the millionth customer, boom, the lights go off the sirens, there's confetti, you get free stuff. Great. And so later you're like, that was pretty good. How did I get that? And you think, oh, I walked into that store. So you walk into that store again, nothing. Because it didn't come from the thing you did just before it happened. So that's an important caveat to all this. Mm. It's part of a a whole life of practices and relationships and inquiries. Well, What was happening was I'd been traveling and I had to – I was up very early and I went to a bus stop um, to head to the city. And it was hours until the bus was going to come. I thought, oh, God, I'm exhausted what are the odds I could take a nap at this bus stop and not miss the bus Okay this is what I want to do so I'm I'm laying at the bus stop it's early morning there's no one around I desperately want to relax into this nap and my body is not relaxing my mind my nervous system they're not relaxing and after a while this starts to puzzle me I think you know the one thing I want to do which is let go I'm not doing why am I not doing the thing I want to do I must be the biggest idiot who's ever lived. And I start to go back over my life. And and I'm thinking this is constant. I've been constantly trying to enter this completely released state and I'm the one holding on. So something is wrong here. I'm I'm thwarting the very thing I want to do. Why is that not registering viscerally for me? Mm -hmm. And by examining that, by constantly contemplating those tensions And thinking of myself as some kind of idiot, um, it released and I had this nap and I woke up and I felt completely released. Like I wasn't doing that stupid thing because I was now, I had a new understanding or insight into how that stupid thing functioned. And it felt hmm, really big, really wide, really smooth. And when you checked yourself for the problems that keep you motivated in life, he didn't find them. Mm. So you're almost like, well, I'm not even me then, because me is that guy who was motivated by that tension. And I felt when people would refer to me, I felt like they were talking to a guy next to me would catch me off guard. I didn't know what they were pointing to when they talked to me. Um, and so a lot of other fascinating coincidences appeared during this time, but that state basically persisted for a month. And during wow. that time, I felt this, uh, extra space growing up and it was hungry for something. So I've had a lot of that, strange peak experiences, but that one was shifted something in my life
0: trajectory. Yeah. And that connects with something you said in the beginning where when people go into practices like meditation mm. with a consumer's mentality, their relationship with the practice is fundamentally undermining the practice itself. There's some sort of paradox there. So if you're trying to let go, if you're like, I really need to let go, then by definition, you're not letting go. Yeah. And so you almost found a, an alternative path by <laughs> thinking about how, how stupid you were for not being able to let go. <laughs> yeah. It was something about permitting the
1: contradiction, allowing that feedback loop to criticize itself and getting comfortable with that. Mm. There was a um, Chogyam Trungpa had this great phrase, spiritual materialism, which mm-hmm. sort of goes to this sort of consumer neediness mentality whereby you approach um, the spiritual life the way you would approach anything else in material life. And therefore, it doesn't give you the results you want, though I always want to clarify that a little bit, because spiritual materialism can also mean that what we're pointing to as, as spirituality is something that's deeply embedded in the material. That from a more non-dual perspective, it, the material universe itself and everything we think of as low and non-spiritual is, is the spiritual thing. We're just not seeing it properly.
0: Mm. So I'd like to explore this topic of practice, which has been um, a really salient theme for me uh, for a very long time now. And I think to set the stage, kind of show maybe the stakes involved with this whole question of what to practice and how to practice, it might also be good to talk about uh, the meta crisis as a starting point. And I'll just tell you how I think about it, and maybe you can add some stuff to it. But basically, I see uh, a a multitude of crises, you know, beyond the ecological crisis, beyond the meaning crisis, uh, beyond the political polarization crisis, whatever you want to call it, like the world's not in a good spot. And it seems like we have the capacity to end civilization. And we lack the wisdom to, to change the direction that we're headed in. And so the metacrisis is this inability to be the people we need to be, to see the things we need to see, to relate in the way that we're supposed to relate in order to avoid this, um, this foolishness, this foolish trajectory that we're on. So the stakes are high. And I think what's implicit in that Framing is some form of transformation is required for the individual, for, for humanity. Um, and that leads us to practice. But before we talk about practice, is there anything you'd add to that, to the stakes? Mm.
1: Yeah, the, the respond gathering that I was just at in Vermont was very mm. focused on how do we clarify, reframe, and upcycle wisdom in order to deal with existential crisis. So it's been on my mind quite a bit. Um, What I would say is there's always been a tendency for something to be wrong in human civilization and maybe further back, right? It's not, we didn't invent things going wrong. It's part of the world. But the negative trends exhibited frequently by humans often had very little power to do damage until modernity. And the specific way in which modernity has amplified our processes uh, has wonderful and terrible consequences. It's solved a lot of problems, but the method it uses to solve problems generates other problems that it can't solve. And the further we go into modernity and the more power is accrued in its hands the more these background problems accumulate and accelerate. So we're facing a situation where there's these converging, accelerating mass scale background problems generated by modernity's amplification of the basic game A tendencies embedded in human Mm -hmm. civilization. And they all look like they're coming to a head at the same time. And it looks like we're not in a position to handle that. Why not? Meaning crisis, psychological insufficiency, we're not spiritual enough, we're not growing fast enough, we're not harnessing our intelligences properly. So some basic change has to go on with us to make us the people who are capable of taking seriously this problem and implementing solutions to it. That's where we're stuck right now. It's not that there aren't solutions. We're not the people who can agree on and implement those solutions. So we need something like a renaissance or something like a religionization that would occur. And my general thinking around this is that it's integration-based, that the individuals need to create what I call numinous excess surplus coherence, beingness, out of increased integration of their internal subjective systems. And we collectively need to integrate classes and genres of culture in order to create a similar numinous excess that has traditionally been pointed to as, as spirit or God or something like that. Because without this additional coherence and coordination and sense of self-worth and sense that we have a divinity as a collective, I don't think we're going to have the willingness or the extra energy and motivation to implement the solutions at the scale and tempo they need to be implemented at. Yeah,
0: I think that's very well put. And to me, in order to do that, human beings need to practice. And I define Mm -hmm. practice as the process by which we transform ourselves. And I define the practice problem as the present day inability for human beings to consciously transform themselves for the betterment of the whole or in response to this crisis. I know you wrote a little flash philosophy piece on the practice problem as well. And uh, I think you... In it, you emphasized um, how it's not clear what we need to practice. I I wonder if you can add some more color to that. Yeah, um,
1: Pierre Limber reached out to me and asked if I would do a little blurb for this problem. And what stood out to me is we seem to have, on the face of it, a dichotomy between people who are trying to do practices in their lives, who understand this new hybrid, spiritual, behavioral, cognitive science, neurophysiological, dharma. Okay, I've got to be doing this stuff. If I don't have a life of practice, nothing's going to work. But my practices have to work together somehow. They have to be embedded in an ecology that makes sense and causes them to support rather than thwart each other. Mm -hmm. And then, in contrast to that, we have the idea that there are these ancient systems or maybe complete idiosyncratic systems that have emerged from particular individuals or movements, you know, in the last 100 or 200 years. But we actually don't know whether those ecologies of practice are functioning well as ecologies or not. So, in mm-hmm. fact, they're, everyone's in the same situation if they look at it honestly. If you go to live in a monastery to devote yourself to practice and it comes embedded with a cultural ethos, Are you sure all those practices fit with that ethos? Are you confident that ethos actually counts as a living ethos? Uh, Are you aware of what shadow stuff might be in it? Are you aware of what successful pieces of it might be thwarting other successful pieces? We really don't know. So we have to come together around this basic attitude of sane experimentalism relative to the development of ecologies of practice. And sometimes that experiment means I'm going to try to commit myself to this lineage or this space that already exists. sometimes that commitment's going to look like I know these two or three pieces have to be in it. I, and I don't know what to add, but I'm going to be willing to let anyone else suggest things. And sometimes it'll look like, hey, let's let's guess let's guess what should go together and see if it works. But all of these are experimental. they all involve exploration and testing and being acutely aware of the fact that our ability to determine what's going to work is flawed, right? Mm -hmm. And this is a big, a big issue when it comes to wisdom practice is what markers would you look for in the short term that you're capable of finding that would actually indicate to you that this is a long-term wisdom development practice. If there's something that's supposed to take 20 years to get you somewhere or a hundred years to get a population somewhere, you can't wait and check and see if that worked. And so what would you look at in the short term to see if it worked? We have a few guesses, but we could be really incorrect about those guesses. So we all have to be aware that we're gambling with this and be really open to sharing information and really open to asking for and theorizing tests of what we're working on. So that's the general context. And I think what I came to in that piece out of that is, what are the skills needed in order to engage an experimental life of practice? What are the pieces, I call them proto skills, that would enable you to either legitimately take up an ecology of practices that is inherited, or legitimately try to cultivate or innovate an ecology of practices. What are the pre-practices that would facilitate either of those two tasks? Right. And I think we can it's an interesting way to look at the Dharma, is like a set of proto skills or the cultivation of a preschool. And to me, this very Gurdjieffian, right? Gurdjieff would always say things like, you're wondering whether you should be a Christian, but you're not capable of being a Christian, right? You're wondering whether you should be a Buddhist. You're not capable of being a Buddhist. You're probably not even capable of being an atheist. That would be a Nietzschean point, right? So what is it that it would take for you to run the experiments? We should be really focused on that key toolkit of of like proto-dharma. And do you have any clues for what's in that toolkit? Yeah. Um, I think some of the obvious things to look at are intentionality and, um, somatic interception, Mm. as well as, um, dialogos, having better conversations, having conversations that generate or clarify wisdom. I think we know you can't do it without physical practice. Um, Mm -hmm. if you're If your musculature and your organ system and your chemistry degenerates, you quickly lose your ability to do spiritual, psychological, and mental capacities. My guess is that it has to do a lot with identifying the difference between internal systems and then using that differential as the base, as a context for practice. But I would come back again and again to intentionality, especially as applied across intelligence systems. The attempt by one intelligence system to modify another or change its relationship to another one. And the ability to sense, hopefully the whole subtle inside of the body, because then you're aware of an entire additional register of information that can help guide you and help evaluate you in your practices. Uh, There might be all kinds of ways, all kinds of signals that you could get that might be legitimate signals that it's working, that it's functioning. But if you're not accessing the part of you that receives those signals, those signals are useless to you. And generally, something like additional somatic sensing has often been pointed to as one of those root capacities that would pick up additional data.
0: Hmm. So we have um, this crisis. We have this need for sane experimentalism because we don't really know which practices are going to be most in service of the crisis. And then we have these clues of these proto. This proto-dharma or these uh proto-practices um that involve intentionality, uh somatic sensitivity, and dialogos. And I, I'm assuming the dialogos one is in service of of communing with others or also having feedback through inquiry. Mm-hmm. Even those three things, if I think about the average person today, those three things are are incredibly difficult to cultivate. You know, most people's intentionality is, is scattered because of our digital ecology, you know, I, I always say that every time you click on something, you step into a marketing funnel and we're just surrounded by marketing funnels. And to the extent that you spend time online or you have these apps on your phone or whatever, your intentionality is like completely scattered. Same thing happens with the somatic experiencing side of things, because you know, the laptop, the the iPhone, it, it disembodies you. You're paying attention to something in front of you and not inside you. And then of course, you know, we can talk about how conversation has broken down. So let's say we're, we're starting modestly with those three things, which maybe isn't so modest. It seems to me that that's going to require quite a lot of commitment, quite a lot of perhaps intentionality to begin with. And uh, there's almost like a catch 22 here. So what what could be a way to resolve that?
1: If you had these functions highlighted within general educational institutions, that might make a difference. Just having them circulate in general discourse is important. Um, you know, a few years through, we wouldn't even have had words like somatic interception. Mm-hmm. Or dialogos. I mean, though it's a term that goes way back, but it didn't have any institutional credibility until very recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these are important um, concepts to have circulating, and memes that represent those concepts, and individuals who can bring them into different institutions. And I think particularly uh, people who can do one of two things, uh, which often fall outside the institutions, and one is. Turn them into art, turn them into culture, turn them into entertainment. You know, that's a much more powerful mechanism of transmission than education mm. institutions usually are. And they bring they bring a whole other set of humans to the table who are not gonna listen to a philosopher or a cognitive scientist or a monk. Right. Among, right. And then the other one is it's gonna come into relationship practice, right? Where is what is the generator function of the citizens we have? It's intimate relationships, it's domestic situations, it's things like that. So we have to look really closely at turning what we think the proto skills are, whether in a simple way or an elaborated way, into things that people use uh, in their friendships, in their sexual lives, with their child raising, with their difficulties they have with relatives, Right. That kind of, that's that's the place where it really starts to get ground, because I think the problem is not just that it's very difficult to get the level of intentionality and commitment to even start. The difficulty is that most people who are aware of the concepts are aware of them in a way that seems set apart from the world. And if, mm-hmm. we, if we did that really well, and it still didn't connect to everyone's lives, we really wouldn't have solved the problem. So it's about getting these basic principles into those areas that transition into lived human experience, which in
0: many ways is our culture, relationships, and homes, families. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because I've noticed this uh, tendency in myself as well, where when I'm talking about these things, it's almost like I'm I'm envisioning some distant place or something that you know, in a couple of years we're going to do. And then I go back to, you know, my daily life and it's like, you know, Monday yeah. and I'm not, I'm not finding a way to, to go from that vision into what it looks like on, like on, on my Monday. And occasionally I'll have these moments where um, the construct of time starts to loosen a little bit. And I realize that, you know, I'll, I'll get more present to put it kind of mildly. Um, and then all of a sudden, I'll start to notice that in in this exact moment, like right now, it's kind of happening as I say this, like as I talk to you, there's actually opportunities for these proto skills to emerge. And I really liked how you said that art is also a big part of this because it's more persuasive than, you know, systematic philosophy papers and and things like that. And I guess this connects to um, the idea of enchantment. Because to me, I find that i'm most committed to my practices when i feel the, the the magic of life when i feel the preciousness of everything and when i feel enchanted and i also find that the practices themselves are a process of of reenchantment so you can kind of engender an upward spiral um i'm curious what that looks like in in your life i, I imagine that by being in these communities um at some point the community itself has its own momentum um and i guess a related question is um is enchantment necessary? And and if it is, how how do we like start the whole system up?
1: It might not be necessary for everyone, but I think it is a very common necessary component. Mm-hmm. And uh for a couple of reasons. One is that the way you start a wisdom tradition doesn't look the same as what a wisdom looks tristan looks like once you've started it, right? It looks like improvisational shamanism at the beginning. Mm. It looks like people in nature. It looks like people having ritual. It looks like people experimenting with altered states of various kinds. Uh, We should be leaning into that again if we need to generate wisdom traditions. But those are contexts in which the, the vivid participatory aesthetic dimension of the embodied world is the locus, is the source or the container of transformative practice. So if we need to either start up wisdom or reground it in a healthy way, then I think we have to fold that dimension in. If we can call it a dimension, the risk of drier forms of practice um, are a that a lot of your internal systems are not actually being activated by it. So huge parts of Mm -hmm. you are being left out of the practice. And those parts are looking for meaningful hits. They're looking for things that are juicy, that they're interested in that turn on their nervous system. And so we can't afford to have practice stray too far away from the embodied and the ecological, because if we do, then it looks like it works very nicely with a civilization that strays away from the embodied and the ecological. We have a, physical and mental health crisis and our spirituality has to address that and to bring it back to the shamanic mode, the shamanic metaphor of practice, we need to do something that is deeply embodied uh, because we know a lot more about the neurophysiology than we used to, um, mm. that is deeply ecological because that's the source of our crisis, is deeply engaging, is deeply stimulating and continues to promote richness and development and nuance and growth in beings that's what it would take for a dharma to be healthy and that's a dharma that looks very much like the old magical enchantment models all right and we want to be careful we don't have to believe their ontologies we don't have to believe the fixed forms that are inherited through any various weirdo or ethnic tradition Right. But there's something about the vividness and the participatory sacred nature of that style of practice that I think we need because it's what works with what we now understand these organisms to be like. And another part of that is the exercise part. Uh, I think Andrew Huberman is doing fantastic work uh, in essentially promoting a wisdom tradition through highlighting certain new neurohormonal information. Right, we go. Okay, listen, you have to make efforts. You can't just live your life. You have to make efforts on purpose. You have to have a schedule. You have to go out and get in the sunlight. You're like, hmm. Okay, he's saying it from a scientific health and exercise perspective. You're going to have to have a new relationship with elemental forces. You're going to have to live more intentionally. It's going to have to seem good to you when you make an effort." That's very interesting because if a person's on their device, it takes an effort to remember that the body is there, or it takes an effort to connect with your values and apply an intention because intention makes us different than what we think animals are. Intention thwarts something the organism wants to do in favor of some higher order value. That's an experience that you really get through exercise, through pushing to your own limits, through touching that weird area where like, "Ah, I kind of fucking hate this, but I think it's also good Mm. for me. When you have a good attitude about that experience, then that can turn into all kinds of inner practices as well. And your system remembers that it's meaningful and leads to good feelings when you apply some practice discipline to yourself. And then it becomes an addictive, self-generating, positive spiral. So, But again, that comes from returning to the body, which is part of returning to this shamanic style, which is also a style that's flavored in the enchantment mode
0: hmm I wonder how you think about the notion of self-discipline, which seems implicitly required for this kind of effort. And the reason why I'm asking is because I think it's, a, it's something that a lot of people have difficulty with, and also a naive understanding of self-discipline often backfires. And I have my own you know, hot take on this, but, but how do you think about self-discipline? It
1: takes a while, if we're lucky, it takes a while to learn that it feels good to make ourselves do things. Mm -hmm. And that's never at the expense of spontaneity and flow and looking after ourselves. They work together. But the way I really come at self-discipline is that it's largely interpersonal. It's self and other discipline, right? You try to be better for others. (laughs) And you work yeah. out ways to be better with others. And I think it's as true internally as it is externally. What I mean by that is the self is at least for the most part and maybe completely not singular. It's plural. And self-discipline refers to producing something like a cell through the reciprocal disciplining of systems within us that would each like to claim to be a self already. Mm -hmm. What we call a self is more like good teamwork and you don't get good teamwork unless these systems hold each other in check. Otherwise a part runs away with the ball and the game ends. Exactly. So that process of reciprocal adjustment between internal systems is what we normally point to as self-discipline. And I think it's easier to get into that if you stop thinking there just is a self that I am.
0: Yeah. Reciprocal adjustment of these internal systems. I, I use this analogy that um, your your mind is like a, a boardroom of all these different stakeholders and they all have like different things that they want. And the, no, the, the common notion of self-discipline is is like being a wartime CEO who decides to just dominate everybody and, and says, this is what we're going to do. And often that leads to a life of extremes where you have, you know, the pendulum swinging where someone does like an elimination diet for a couple of weeks, and then they start, you know, eating Doritos. Um, and so, what it looks like more, the, the closer I've I've looked at, I've investigated this process in myself, the more I've realized is exactly what you said. Um, one, it's about developing a good relationship with these internal systems and attending to them because they all have a piece of the puzzle. But two, it's not just about the self like as, as me, as Daniel, it's about, um, something more mutual and more, um, community oriented. And so in my life, I've noticed the most disciplined periods have always been when I've had some sort of accountability, mm-hmm. when I've worked with someone, when, when a group of people have committed to something. And then I started to realize that actually the whole idea of self-discipline was just based on this illusion or, or, uh, this hyper individualism and, if I start to attend to the people in my community, then naturally I start doing th- those things that require effort. And it feels good to do those things because they're in service of others.
1: Yeah. There's, um, uh, Swami Rudrananda, who was like a early prominent, uh, idiosyncratic Kundalini teacher. He was Adi Da's first teacher. Mm. Uh, He had an interesting remark that um, our development is based on our self-esteem, but mostly what we call self-esteem isn't real self-esteem. To get deep, authentic self-esteem is difficult. And the simplest way for us to get it is by serving others. And then we reciprocally give ourselves back an assessment of our deep goodness. Mm. And so it could be conceived of as a strategy for gaining self-esteem. That's not too far from thinking that goodness has to be co-generated mutually. Well, there's also very simple ways to think about it. I mean, why would you not lie? Lying is super useful. <laughs> <laughs> the only reason you would not lie, unless you'd been convinced of a theory or some weird thing, but that seldom. Is, it's because somebody you care about calls you on it mm-hmm. or suggests that you be more truthful with them. And for other people that you care about, that makes sense to us. If in the absence of concerns of that kind, why would you not be a sociopath? It's an extremely efficient behavioral model, unless it leaves out some kind of mutual confrontation that promises to lead to something that feels even better than getting away with stuff for yourself.
0: Yeah. You mentioned um, Adida, and I I know you had this piece about is a motivational hack. Um, Do you mind uh, uh, relaying that? Wow,
1: I remember that I wrote that. Uh, (laughs) Maybe you could refresh (laughs) me on the content.
0: It was something about how, um, to me it related to what you described uh, with your experience at the bus stop Um, and some form of those moments when you realize that everything is kind of in its place and you're no longer you're no longer fighting with your present experience and there's like this uh reframing there's no there's no craving there's no grasping there's no like oh i just want a better future state that i don't have right now and then that that internal tension that comes from that um lack of satisfaction disappears and then some sort of energy is is freed up and you said it it looks like meditation but it's more of a motivational hack which i thought was a was an interesting reframing. Yeah,
1: he was a very curious character. There's a lot of different, very polarized opinions on him. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that always stood out to me was it was a choice to present that material as part of a spiritual lineage, right? That he was a spiritual master or a guru or that he was going to do what the ancient Indian traditions of guru transmission did. He could easily have chosen to present it differently as some... um, structure of insight into the process of seeking is how he seemed to originally have thought about it. And, you know, I would recommend people who are interested in the existential condition of the human being would do well to study his writings just before and just after the transition he seems to have gone through because he's wrestling mm-hmm. with a very specific structural, cognitive, emotional problem he's trying to solve. He's finding himself constantly motivated by an insufficiency. And he thinks that insufficiency is being generated by a, a voluntary but uninspected process of contraction that causes our feeling attention to be channeled into one particular zone at the expense of all the other zones. And that all of this is orchestrated around what he, you know, the failure to be present in relationship. And so if you can see yourself making this sort of energetic gesture of feeling attention, going into this contractive and exclusive mode and can recognize it and feel into it and feel beyond it, you can sort of spring that trap and return yourself to a greater level of functioning that comes out of a place that's untroubled. And you can start to mm-hmm. do it in all these different channels in ourselves, right? We conceive of the subsystems as chakras, or we conceive see them any different way you want, heart, mind, and body, left and right. There's lots of different ways to break it down. But if all of our different functional systems are liberated by being liberated from the contracted motivation that generates the insufficiency feeling, then we should be able to improve our relations with others, our functional capacity, and our existential sense of contentment all in the same move. And that might look like spirituality, but you could also call it anything else. It might just be applied
0: psychobiology. Yeah. I- a modern framing of this that pops to mind is, uh, is Eckhart Tolle describing your two purposes. The first is to accept the present moment as it is. So it's like the equanimity uh, getting out of that contracted state. And then the second is whatever purpose remains after accepting the present moment as it is. It also reminds me of, um, I think David Data said, to always endeavor to, to source everything you do from consciousness itself, so you know you're making coffee in the morning, you can just make it mindlessly, but you can also be fully aware of kind of the plane of consciousness um, prior to the actions involved in in making coffee and in my mind, those things are triangulating the same thing, and uh, another word people use to describe this is is equanimity. Um, I always feel like there's a paradox there because I have a In my more egoic moments, I I feel like if I'm too equanimous about something, I'm just not going to do anything. You know, I'm just going to sit there. I actually kind of need to feel this contraction so that I um, actually do things so that I actually put in the effort. I've become more and more persuaded that isn't the case. But how do you think about that seeming paradox?
1: I think that's... um... Like with so many aspects of this, it's an anxiety to be felt through. It's not a real paradox. Hmm. I think there are, if we conceive of the equanimity as having this sort of moral quality of balance and indifference and as being fundamentally part of an indifferent layer of consciousness, we can run the risk of steering ourselves in a non-functional direction, but we don't have to conceive it in those terms. It might just be the um, uncontracted, or we might even say freely expanding and contracting state of our personal field of energy and attention. And Mm. in its uncontractedness, it should allow more energy to flow through each of our functional ways of relating to other people in the world. And uh, it's possibly been a problem in the great spiritual traditions that people have Uh, emphasized really high states or particular intensities of this experience by constricting or cutting off the demands of other parts of their system, right? Mm -hmm. But there's no reason that has to be the case. That same move of opening should be able to occur in all of our regions. And when it's not just occurring in your third eye or out the top of your head, so to speak, it's also in your speech, also in your heart, also in your loins, you know, then that should lead to appropriate relational functionality. But I do think there are specializations and that the, you get the basic human operating system, that's a given, and there's ways that can get way better. Most people are not good at that one. You can also get the Insolvent package. You can also get like the awakening add-on and, and the ecological <laughs> extension set. So if the awakening add-on has its own concerns, and if, you're not, if you don't go very far, in the human operating system and you're also not working on the insolvent package and you're just focusing on the awakening module, yeah, there's a way in which you can just be totally absorbed into being the uncontracted witness of everything that's arising and not have any of your functional tools at your disposal in the regular way or in the depth way. Uh, So I think we do have to you know, sort of keep all those things on the table and in the discussion to ward off the tendency of people to get imbalanced in one direction. Although, if somebody wants to specialize, great. As long as we know where they fit and can harvest that information, we don't treat that specialization as
0: a normative prescription for everyone else all the time. Yeah, you know, you you helped me identify a, kind of a, an unpleasant thought that I've had about this that has informed my bias to thinking that this equanimity state is indifferent and it's that i've met a lot of people with really rigorous meditation practices who've been meditating for many many years who uh strike me as as uh passive and unvital in in the way they conduct themselves there's something about them and this is you know definitely not everybody but i've met enough that I've, this bias has emerged in me where there's something about these people who maybe only have the awakening package installed where they seem um they seem unexciting. They seem they seem disengaged. Um and the best example for me is and I, I don't know him, but is uh you've all know Harari who goes on like meditation retreats for two months of the year, meditates for two hours a day. Uh, but when I hear him speak, he seems completely clueless about key dimensions to the human experience. And I think he's actually one of the characters that's encouraging this myopic techno utopianism and it's leading society in in the wrong direction Um, and so what i'm getting from what you're saying is that these perhaps perhaps these people are not prioritizing the soul or i've heard you talk about this before where often people overemphasize consciousness and they don't they don't even think about the subconscious and all its wisdom And this connects to what you were saying about the need for shamanic practices, but even a lot of um, the people we know, they're really good at high minded galaxy brain type conversations. And that seems to privilege one of these modes at the expense of another. So first, if you have any reactions to what I just said, I'd love to hear that, but maybe this could be a good segue into this topic of the subconscious turn and the need for engaging more with subconscious practices.
1: Yeah, there's a, there's a point in really good dialogical or group flow experiences where you are folding in things off the tip of your tongue. It's doing some of that work. But there's definitely a tendency of people to over-focus on consciousness without even having a clear idea of what that is. Hmm. And that can definitely trap us in... Mm, exaggerated left brain modalities, let's say. When we know now a great deal about the um, richness of complex systems that are operating outside of our waking state awareness, and if we try to make the essence of our waking state awareness into our fundamental and only practice, we do join a beautiful ancient lineage of people who've made that similar attempt. But there's some good reasons to think it's not going to solve our collective problems. And there's some good reasons to think that it's going to leave out a lot of our embodied multidimensional experience. And it's going to be deficient in relating to ecology and other people properly. And it's going to fail to access a lot of our creative possibilities. So then the question becomes, how do we how do we take advantage of transconscious conscious intelligence in some way, right? We're not looking for anything that happens to be unconscious, but we are looking for something that can counterbalance and possibly merge with the conscious mind. Mm-hmm. We're looking at the possibility of what it would look like to cultivate development in your subconscious. Right, so one of the interesting things, if you're in a developmental community, integral, spiral dynamics, any of those framings, Um, Do we assume that the personality that wakes up in the morning is the one who's undergoing the developmental transitions, or do we conceive of that one as being just the the foyer, just the front, the facade of the building, and that the one who has to undergo these developmental transitions is the part of you you don't see, the other self, the one you just feel as a contextual Mm. alternative to yourself? because we know we come with built-in instincts and intuitions that arise from those instincts and they can be really powerful especially they can be excellent heuristics for dealing with complex systems that linear models even very good ones fail to grasp sometimes but also they evolved in the circumstances that our ancestors evolved in our animal ancestors and our human ancestors so there are. There are things that our intuition doesn't do very well for us. It doesn't do statistics very well. Mm -hmm. It's not very conversant with modern technology because it just started as far as the instincts are concerned. So at the very least, we might be asking ourselves, how do we adapt our intuition to be up to date so that it can help us in the world we currently inhabit? And this is the same question as how do I evolve my subconscious intelligence? What can my consciousness do? to help that other one get wiser and smarter and more capable of steering my life because my own decisions may be insufficient. I need that one to do it, but I need to be able to count on the fact that that one is as competent as possible. So then the role, and this happens in shamanism, it happens in various forms of occult and magical practice and also in some versions of traditional Eastern Dharma, the role of consciousness becomes to transition things to the subconscious properly, and to mm. enact prompts from the subconscious property becomes an assistant, right? The the master and his emissary, to use McGillchrist's Christ's term. Yeah. If we reframe consciousness as a helper to some other intelligence system in us, then a, a
0: new set of options for practice open before us. The first thing that comes to mind here is uh, lucid dreaming. It just makes me think that if you had that ability to reliably, first of all, remember your dreams and then interact with the constituents of them. You would have a better connection, uh, from the emissary to the master. Is that something you've ever explored? I did a lot of lucid dreaming work when I was an
1: adolescent. I yeah. was, uh, obsessed by seeing what could be going on in the mandala of those experiences. Uh, I'm not driven to it as much anymore, but it's a wonderful area for practice for sure. Um, partly because you have to intentionally acquire a very careful balance in yourself, but Mm. partly because it's an access to these other treasure troves of information. Uh, There is a, I don't know if you read The Dawn of Everything, the Graeber and Wingrau sort of anti-modernist neo-history book came out last year. Uh, has a lot of fascinating data about different cultures that we don't normally hear in the story of history. And some of those stories involved um, peoples who took dreams as action prompts as part of their normal social behavior. That if mm-hmm. something came up in a dream, you were supposed to do that thing. Even to the weird point of someone coming to your house and saying, you know, I dreamed I dreamed that uh, I get your spear. And you'd be like, okay, I guess if you dreamed it, here you go. There's something about that, right, that they're, they're using this other resource to give them information that they're going to gamble applies to the world. And then on top of that, the consciousness is going to, as a practice, try to enact it in some way and then mm-hmm. causes that subconscious world to have significance and extension into the sensory motor domain. I think that's one of the things that makes it more competent. And I think that's at the root of of like a, a non... I mean, there's a lot of practices around the will, and then there's a lot of contemporary critique that the will isn't even an appropriate psychological or neurophysiological notion. But in terms of building a will, in terms of... Uh, creating a behavioral intentional profile for yourself as a community of intelligences so that it can act in the world in a way where the signature of that action really seems to characterize you. Uh, You have to do something like will building exercises, regardless of the ontological status of the will. And one of the ways to do that is to act on prompts that seem to come from certain regions of the subconscious, right? It's not like you want to do everything that you do in every dream. But some dreams, some visions, some internal whims, I I usually call it whim fulfillment because if you have a special reason, like I desperately need this or I have to for social reasons or for survival reasons, then the force of the have to adds this urgency and you might not really be developing this subtler capacity. But if you have a meaningful whim and you Mm. absolutely don't have to do it, it almost makes no sense. And you still decide, you don't even know where the prompt is coming from, and yet you commit yourself to it as part of your spiritual discipline. Then it draws together many parts of yourself, and it gives your subconscious more access to the world. And I think we see this in the self-developmental aspect of the life of the artist. Right? Mm. There's no reason to paint the Mona Lisa. You could have painted right. anything else, but you had an idea and you thought, I'm going to make myself do that idea that I don't have to do, that I would think would be awesome when it's done. And I'm going to hold myself to that as a practice. And at the end, people do find that they feel, A, more empowered to make their life be what they want, but more existentially satisfied. You think, you know, I really did that. I did a thing that I came up with. I'm I'm closer to a causal force in the world
0: that has my affective flavor. This is, um, this is blowing my mind because, uh, it explains a bunch of things that I've experienced personally in the last few years that I, um, I never really put into any kind of framework. Um, I'll, i I want to tell you about those experiences and I don't want to forget. I also want to explore more of these, uh, will practices, Sure, but I'll just share an anecdote first. I remember, um, a few years ago, I started to see a lot of synchronicities just meaningful coincidences in life. And I have a, my background's in uh, biomedical science and neuroscience. So I've been trained in this like post-enlightenment skepticism. Um, And so my natural attitude towards these coincidences is to find ways to dismiss them. But I don't know what it was exactly. I decided to, it was a whim. I decided to take them seriously um, just for fun. And what I noticed is as I did that, I started to see more synchronicities and they start to feel, uh, like they had imperatives associated with them. So one of them that was very profound was, uh, I had a dream. And in this dream, I was in Edinburgh, Scotland, which is where I lived when I was on exchange my final year of school and has like a very special place from in my heart and memories and et cetera. And in this dream, um, it was so vivid that when I woke up, I felt kind of confused about who I was. It, it, there was this moment where I was like, wait, I'm actually in Canada. I'm not in Scotland. Like, I, I, I felt overwhelmed by the vividness of the dream in the moments after waking. And there was this um, deep like, ache and like, confusion in my body about my identity and my place in the world. And then I checked my phone to see what time it was. And I had one notification on it. And it was an email from Google Flights um, saying that flights from Toronto to Edinburgh were 50% off. So that was a synchronicity. I didn't expect that email. I wasn't, as far as I knew, I wasn't subscribed to anything like that. And so naturally I just bought the ticket. I was like, oh, okay, now act on that. And the rest of the stories could take up the the rest of the the conversation, but um, what ensued on that trip was, a succession of profound synchronicities, and it was one of the most meaningful trips of my life. And I met all these interesting people. And, um, it really was like this little magical thing that I, for a while, just like kind of put in the back of my mind, but seeing it this way, the way that you just described, it's almost as if I gave my unconscious a little more bandwidth because I, I listened to it. Um, or, you know, maybe this, this is like the anima. Um, there was a prompt and I, I listened to what the unconscious, the anima had to say, and then maybe that established a little bit of trust. So then I had more of these prompts coming into my life. And since then, I, I would say my, my life is characterized by quite a lot of these synchronicities. And sometimes there's more and sometimes there's less, but um, coming back to this theme of enchantment, it, it almost seemed like a very concrete way to re-enchant my experience. Um, yeah, so that's really cool. I'm very curious about the will side of things too, because I do see how this would train your will and kind of give you that artist's sense of inspiration or that demonic energy that, um, that obsessive energy that gets people to create things. If you increase the bandwidth you have with your subconscious, um, I'm assuming that's what you meant by it, but what else is involved in this, these exercises of will cultivation? you're
1: you're trying to put the executive function as an intermediary position from a source subconscious intelligence to the world and back Mm. right so that it's training to be this assistant and when it does its assistant's job properly like what you described it can kick into like an additional gear of meaning production which is very good for us Um, satisfies a lot of our existential conundrums Um, and is very, very promising, very much like what we want enlightenment to mean, but enlightenment in an embodied personal way where it's not just hmm, some homogenous universal background characteristic brought into the foreground, but an individual embodied unique experience of a universally potent seeming meaningfulness in all our, right? Like the meaningfulness is uh, breaks the chart, skews off (laughs) the Mm. the feedback, (laughs) compounds to the max position. Um, Because if everything you encountered was maximally um, meaningful to you personally, (laughs) you could be simultaneously free from it and simultaneously completely engaged as a local participatory agent. Mm -hmm. Um, So a lot of the practices um, look like following those subtle prompts. I think a lot of those practices look like giving yourself, um, challenges that are, can't immediately be met by the, um, forebrain executive who's on normal duty. Uh, and those can be discrimination tasks. Those are interesting. Uh, and also shamanic, right? Like if you were going to go out in the woods and I was like, okay, you have to You have to hold sway over a shamanic ritual we're going to have later. I want you to go out in the woods, and I want you to find the correct feather for the ceremony. It's got to be just the Mm -hmm. right one. So now you're out there, you're looking at feathers. Any one of them could be the sacred feather, but you've got to somehow make a decision about which one has this extra abstract quality. So there, that's another way to do it, right? You're training a a discrimination action feedback loop from the unconscious through the executive rather than letting the executive be in control of it. I've mentioned on a lot of podcasts this practice I do combining uh, Jendlin's focusing technique with perception. So if you're familiar with Jendlin's focusing, he's looking at Uh, a general proprioceptive felt sense in the body. And he's trying to take people through psychoanalytic processes by really feeling into the generalized sense um, and then experimentally bringing up phrases or descriptors to see which one locks into place where you have a felt sense that it fits, even if you don't know why it fits. Mm -hmm. So you can also do that in ways that are not part of the therapeutic dialogue. You can also do them with, novel or vivid sensations right like wow look at that thing and you go okay well what is it i'm looking at you could answer from the part of you that has the rational decipherable linear information at hand already or you could try to force yourself to answer from another part and the characteristic of this other part is that you don't have the information on hand and it does not immediately make sense to you but you can kind of throw random words at this phenomenon and discard ones that make sense to you and find a random one that gives you the felt sense of, of resonance. And what you're doing there is essentially bringing two systems into close combination. So you're increasing your overall integration of systems, right? Something's doing the seeing and locating function. And this other source of information, which is not immediately available, is being drawn out and they're being forced to um, find something that they think equals each other. They're making this connection. So you're bringing the overall system together, but you're also directly doing it, drawing on some kind of subconscious intelligence, it's something that's using patterns that are not linearly compressible to the front of the mind, something that you don't recognize the pattern, but somehow it's functioning as if it were a pattern. Uh, so that's a couple of examples.
0: So I, I would like sit in my room and I'd look around at random objects. And then one of them might catch my attention. And then I'd put aside all the rational reasons for why it would catch my attention and maybe I'd try out other things that pop into my mind that don't seem to rationally make sense until I have this felt sense of, of resonance. Yeah, exactly. And, um, my
1: proposal would be that if you did that a few times in a row, uh, it would build up to a very interesting general being like background experience of yourself the The sense of activating the subconscious and the sense of forcing these unusual conjunctions between different internal systems can lead to very uh, intense temporary experiences of wow, i'm really me coherently beyond myself. <laughs> Uh, right. It's, yeah, it's it's a strange practice, but it's uh, I find it a very powerful one. Is that something you do daily? Yes, I have a a suite of daily practices, <laughs> and that's yeah. definitely one of them. That's a nice one so, because you can drop it anywhere. Right? There's parts some practices where you need to be able to sit down for twenty minutes. This one you can kind of
0: just do it whenever you remember. Yeah, I I'm definitely going to try that uh, this afternoon. So one of my questions for you is, to the extent that you want to share them, what are your daily practices?
1: Generally, first thing, I'll do a coherence generating meditation, 15 to 20 minutes. Often I call subtle mantra, which is a generalization of the transcendental meditation technique where you're not really using the mantra as the point of focus. You're tr- you're using it as a contrastive mental stimulation to whatever your mind is normally doing. So your feeling attention goes to essentially stress or an unresolved situation. And you think of a thought that's lighter than that, less contracted, gentler, easier than that one. And then it'll go to another one. You think of another thought that's outside of the realm of that stress. You do that for a while, and then suddenly it doesn't close back down. It's just holding open. And then if you have time, stay with the holding open. It goes up to another level. If you don't have time, that's when to get up. It also feels like you've got good hemispheric synchronization at that point. That's usually my initial practice. Then I'll have my, you know, hydrate exercise. I'll do a combination of yoga and other exercises, but I try to do them with simultaneous equal attention to physical, emotional, and mental efforts. Mm. Right. So uh, let's say you're going to plank for the count of a hundred. Now you've got your physical effort down already. Okay. So now you're going to count to a hundred. Maybe that's too easy. Maybe you count by threes instead. And at the same time, you use a, this is just one example, uh, a deliberately chosen emotion. You say, okay, I'm going to count to 100 by 3 is the whole time I'm going to feel gratitude as intensely as I can while I do this planking. Mm-hmm. And what I really want is for those three efforts to be equal in the amount of attention and energy I'm putting into them. That's where the greatest opportunity for them to blend into some additional feeling quality will come from. Um, and then I go into more social aspects of practice. I mean, I could break down my whole life as practice if I wanted to, but I'm going to... Mm-hmm sit with my loved one and contemplate the issues of the day, try and get some dialogos going, try to organize the day in advance a little bit. Um, generally, I will put some time aside in the afternoon for an insider inquiry practice. And then I've been doing some of these uh, subconscious type practices in throughout the day. Uh, I'll do some kind of inquiry in the afternoon. And that would be to rather than tell yourself what to focus you are doing any one of a number of different processes that deal with whatever your system is bringing up for you as the focal point. These are closer to those uh, Adidas style practices or closer to Vipassana, closer to a number of different kinds of inquiry. And usually, I've had an idea each day about how I want to approach it so It's not a consistent methodology. The general structure is consistent. But, you know, I might sit down one day and think, oh, you know, everything my mind brings me seems to be a condition of insufficient flow. So Hmm. maybe I will let it go to whatever it wants to go to, recognize that as insufficient flow, and remind myself of what flowing behavior would look like under those conditions, and then go to the next one and go to the next one. Or it might be that everything it brings you, you think, Oh, this is a problem that would likely be solved if I were to enter into deeper or richer communication with someone. Or maybe each thing that it brings to you, you're like, hmm, I'm focusing on this at the expense of everything else I could focus on. Can I let go of this and focus on everything? So there's ways to process through. So that's usually my afternoon practice. Then um, very often there'll be um, a relational or sexual practice that my partner and I will do. Uh, and then in the evenings, uh, I tend to mm, do as little practice as possible until just before bed when I might do another little bit of physical routine or set myself some kind of project for the night. Those are pretty consistent. But the the ones that weave in and out throughout the day are often the most interesting ones because they're in response to your contingent circumstances. Yeah, they're they're dynamic as opposed to like, scheduled beforehand. Yeah. And especially if I can get into nature, which I often do as part of my daily exercise, if I can get an hour or two walking, some excuse, or even if it's yeah. just working in the yard, then that becomes an opportunity for uh, working with uh, elemental qualities and perceptions.
0: So um, in closing, I want to ask, let's say someone's listening to this and they get the stakes you know they're like yeah there's a meta crisis yeah i need to practice um yes i need intentionality i need um somatic introspection i need to improve my logos. but then they don't really know where to start or they haven't had a taste of what you and i are talking about what's something you would suggest to them <laughs>
1: I mean, practically speaking, the most important thing is to get into some community with other people who are feeling and seeing the same things. And in those communities, people will make suggestions. Um, the quality, the intersubjective quality of those spaces will be a flavor of its own that will give you some of the taste of this and trying to be of support and of service in those communities and to work through shadow and reactivity with other people. Um, I think that's probably the most important cauldron in which you could have some of this experience. Um, but if you can't, try to make yourself do something you think would be amazing, but that you absolutely don't have to do. And that okay. will provoke a lot of these skills into activity in yourself. Um and, you know, sometimes that thing is not like art. Sometimes that thing is like remorse. I try to bring this up a lot because it's very fascinating. There's a, when you run into a contradiction between your behavior and your values, we tend to avoid the, the crux, the friction of that. Even if we were bothered by it, we don't lean into it. And leaning into those kinds of dissonant states within us is something you can think of and think maybe that's a good idea, but I'd have to make myself do it on purpose. I'd have to try to hold in that space between who I think I am and what I clearly did. And that in holding, you're doing something in a way, whim-like, on purpose, activating intentionality, and also putting yourself in the position to draw a greater amount of integration between two different parts of your system, between the current value holder part and the memory behavioral part, and it also makes you a better person. And that better personness has a certain flavor, a certain flavor of self-esteem and goodness and ability to show up with other people that I think is essentially at the heart of what we're talking about.
0: Layman Pascal, thank you so much for this conversation today. Thanks, Daniel. It's been great.